0: has come. That's what the Gospels tell us. The Messiah is here. Which book is historical? Acts. Acts. We see the movement of the Holy Spirit as in the launch and the expansion of the Church of Jesus Christ. Which books are considered instructional? Yes, and they're also Romans Revelation and we call them the what? The epistles. Now we said the instructional books amplify the story. How does this apply specifically to the epistles and the New Testament? Well, once we believe the testimony of the Gospels, that Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah, what does that mean for us? In other words, what are the implications of our belief? This is what the epistles tell us. This is how they amplify the story. And we'll continue this discussion after our first table discussion. And it's actually your pre-work. Table leaders, uh, I actually thought the five questions that were in the time of reflection made great discussion questions. Number four, does ask for some personal stories if you're willing to share them. And in the application section, we were given an exercise and a list of questions that we might want to ask every time we look at scripture. I don't know if anybody had a chance to do that. You can determine if that's something that you want to continue or not. So take about 20 minutes to to, uh, spend some time talking about what you looked at this week. Well, thank you very much. I hope you had the opportunity to share your insights with each other in this, uh, what I thought was a good lesson. Next thing we're gonna do is take a look at our timeline. We're in the teaching section of the timeline, but if you can, open it up to the Pentecost and teaching section, which are three panels. How many epistles are in the New Testament? (coughs) Anybody know? Okay, there's 22 epistles in the New Testament. (laughs) But in our teaching section, there is only 21 listed. Which one do you think is not listed here in teaching? Revelation, Revelation. excellent. And why do you think that is? What's Revelation about? Excellent, okay. So the 21 epistles that are in teaching were written to current believers in their historical setting. These were real people who lived and real issues are addressed. The timeline lists the epistles and you can see for each one a summary statement is given. So for example, what's a summary statement for Philippians? Joy in Christ. Joy in Christ. What about Ephesians? Unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. How about First and Second Timothy? I hope that you find this useful when you use your timeline. But... In the 21 epistles listed, there is one word that's common. What's the common word in all the summary statements? Christ. Excellent. You'll also see in the teaching panel the New Testament key beliefs. And we'll be studying these in the next two weeks with Neil, which is going to be another wonderful way to really begin and to continue to study and understand this story. Now, at the bottom of the three panels, you'll see the 21 epistles listed. They go from Romans to Jude. The first 13 epistles, Romans to 13, were written by Paul. They are in length order, not chronological order. So as you're reading them, you're not going through a flow of the story historically. So what do you think the longest epistle of Paul's is? How about the shortest? Philemon. Okay. Now, the next book is Hebrews. Hebrews is anonymous. Scholars have come to the conclusion that they don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. But they can not come to the conclusion to whom they think wrote the book. So therefore, uh, we really only know one author of the book of Hebrews. And that's the Holy Spirit because although they cannot determine the human author, they believe that it it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is why it's in scripture. Okay, the next seven epistles are titled by the author of the epistle. Do you see that? First and second Peter, first, second, third John, James, Jude, okay. Whereas uh, Romans through Hebrews are titled by the recipient of the letters. Last point. Let's look at some of the historical setting on this timeline. Let's see what's really going on why these are being written. The first emperor listed is Nero. Take a look at the panel to the left of the timeline under Pentecost. At the bottom, you'll see 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. What happened under Nero? What's the first thing you read there under Pentecost? James, right? James, the brother of Jesus, is executed in Jerusalem. We think he wrote the epistle of James. We think he was the Bishop of Jerusalem and he was at the Jerusalem council. So under Nero, uh, he is executed. What happens under first and second Peter? What do you see there? Yes, none of these executions are recorded in the New Testament so you can see where they're happening. One other point, let's take a look at the next emperor, Vespasian. Do you see his dates, 69 to 79 AD? Something major occurred during his reign. Does anybody know? Destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And even if you don't love history details, historical details, 70 AD is an important date to remember. Let me ask you this. If the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, when do you think the temple sacrifice has ended? Great inference thinkers. Yes, 70 AD. Has this temple ever been rebuilt again? No. Great. Okay, so that is an overview of all the things that you have already reviewed and done since we started back in the Old Testament. Are you feeling confident now that you know your Bibles? Great. Okay, so... Our big idea, tonight we're going to look at the last seven epistles of Paul, and our big idea is the new humanity created in Christ is also united in Christ. We're going to start with Ephesians. At the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, we find Paul under house arrest. During this time, he wrote four letters known as the prison epistles. Three were written to churches, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. One was written to a wealthy believer, Philemon. In Ephesians, there's a structure here that helps us. The first half of the letter is doctrine and it addresses the fact of their salvation. That's chapters one through three. The second half of the letter is practical and addresses their responsibility of conduct and behavior as a result of their salvation chapters 4 through 6. Ephesians presents the true meaning of Christ's relationship to the church. It's a wonderful letter. Look at the things that it covers. It tells us that Christ is head and Lord of the church. He requires loyal obedience and service. He is the bridegroom who is seeking a pure bride. How is the purity of the bride even made possible? What happened? How does our Father see us? He sees us through Jesus Christ. That's how we're made pure. And look at this, he's both Israel's Messiah and the Gentile hope which unites within himself a new people, both Jew and Gentile. And we began to hear about this back in Genesis 12 when all nations will be blessed. This last point is actually a restatement of our big idea tonight. The new humanity created in Christ is also united in Christ. Now as Paul wrote this this epistle, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He must have been awed by the grace of God, which can bring into being this united church. In this Christian society, Jews and Gentiles Find their true place. The unity of the body of believers, which is nothing less than Christ's body. That's us too. The unity of the body of believers, which is nothing less than Christ's body, is Paul's great concern here in this letter. He starts with one premise that of the one new man, Christ Himself in which a new humanity has been created by God through God's reconciling work on the cross. And remember, that, that cross was payment for our redemption. So what's the message of this wonderful letter? Well, let's look at the doctrinal section, chapters one through three. Again, there's gonna be a lot of scripture to read, so you can pass the microphone around, but if you like to read scripture, Go, go for it, but it doesn't make sense for me just to give you a list of things and not show you where it is in the story, okay? So Paul identifies the blessings that the Ephesians have received as a result of being in Christ. So think about what we said, right? The foundational has told us Jesus Christ is Lord. Those of us who believe it, some of the implications include these many blessings. So let's look at the implications and they're wonderful. The first thing we find out is we're chosen chosen who would read that scripture thank you long ago even before he made the world God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes thank you and think about that verse in light of all that we've seen going on in the Old Testament and God's people and rejecting him and idolatry. And even before we even walk the earth, he chose us to be holy without fault. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Next, predestined. Would somebody read that verse? His Plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, and this gave him great pleasure. Thank you. you, Have you ever thought of yourself as giving God great pleasure? You do. Okay, next we have the redemption and forgiveness of sins. I got it. He is so rich in kindness that he purchased our freedom through the blood of his son, and our sins are forgiven. Thank you. Purchased our freedom through the blood of his son, what is that the definition of? Redemption. Redemption. Great. Look at this, we've obtained an inheritance. Somebody read this? Oh, I'm sorry. We he, obta- thank you. obtained an inheritance. Furthermore, because of Christ. We have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us from the beginning, and all things happened just as he decided long ago. Have you thought about that? It's not just the Ephesians. It's everyone in this room. This is a letter to the church, and look at this. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Could somebody read this? I got it. Thank you. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us everything He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. This is just one more reason for us to praise our glorious God. Thank you. What's in blue? What words are in blue? And think about that. It's our hope that when you read the Scripture, you're starting to see these things. Purchase, redemption, what God has done. It puts the story together. Do you see in how many verses we see this, right? So, as Paul concludes what we call chapter one, he prays that they would have spiritual wisdom and revelation. Somebody read these. I've never, I have never stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Thank you. You see, here's another wonderful implication of being a believer. Not only do we know there is a God, we get to know him intimately, and Paul prays for that. That's just chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul writes about salvation by grace through faith. Once they were dead in their sins like we were, But now they were raised from the dead along with Christ. He concludes this section. Because of this salvation, there is now peace with God. And that's the true meaning of shalom. Let's take a look at this wonderful verse. Somebody please read this. He has brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and to us Jews who were near. Now all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, may come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you. Do you think Paul's making the point of who made all this possible? In chapter three, Paul was made an apostle to explain this, what he calls great mystery. In our NLTs, the term is secret plan for mystery. He's saying now that something that was once hidden was now revealed. But actually, you know, if you think about it, we started seeing in Genesis 12, those little hints, right? All nations would be blessed. And if you look at Jesus' genealogy, we begin to see people in that genealogy who were not Jewish. So it's all coming along. But at this point, under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's exploding. So Paul is saying, we now have this mystery revealed to us. Let's see what he says in um, Ephesians 3.6. And this is the secret plan. The Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews in all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessing through Jesus Christ. Thank you. I think you could layer Genesis 1 through 3 over this. He tells them, all nations, tells Abraham, all nations are going to be blessed through you. Look at the outworking of this now. Jew and Gentile are coming to the church. And how? It's through your seed all who who will be blessed. Who's the seed of Abraham that blesses all nations? Jesus Christ. So there it is, okay? Now Paul concludes the doctrinal section with a prayer that the Ephesians may understand the depths of Christ's love, the depth of the head of the church for the body of the church. Let's read these beautiful words.
1: And may you have the power to
0: understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. Thank you. And finally, what's really required here, a benediction of praise. Now glory be to God. By his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. May he be given glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen. Thank you. That's the doctrinal section of the book of Ephesians, quickly. So chapters 4 through 6 now concern practical matters and relationships, the outworking of this new salvation, of this new humanity. In chapter 4, Paul deals with relationship to ministry. This section is explicitly clear regarding the church's unity. I'm going to read this, and let's see if you pick up Paul's point. Always keep yourselves united in the Holy Spirit, and bind yourselves together with peace. We are all one body. We have the same spirit, and we have all been called to the same glorious future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and there is only one God and Father who was over us all and in us all and living through us all. Did you get his point? (laughs) The new humanity is also united in Christ. However, there's a little shift here in the next verse, and we're in chapter 4. We've gone from verse 3 to 6, now we're looking at 7. Would somebody please read verse 7? However, he has given each one of us a special gift according to the generosity of Christ. He is the one who gave these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Thank you. What this is telling us is unity in Christ does not necessitate uniformity. We don't always have to be alike in everything we do. As a matter of fact, as we just heard, he is the one that gives the various kinds of gifts and there's a reason for it. And we see it here in this next uh, verse. But somebody please read verse 12? Their Edwards. responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ, until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be, we will be more mature and full grown in the Lord, measuring up to the full stature of Christ. Thank you. That's why the gifts are given. And if you look at this language, It mirrors something Paul wrote to the Roman church. Remember we talked about our blessings, chosen and predestined? Well, I know many of us know Romans 8.28. Read the next verse, 8.29. Listen to the language of chosen and predestined. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. The full stature of Christ, that's why we have the gifts, this is why the body edifies each other, to become like Christ. And Paul is saying the same thing. God knew us, foreknew us, and he chose us to be like his son. So because of their responsibility of ministry, Paul will then encourage them in chapter 4 to live a holy lifestyle. He says, don't live as the ungodly live, who are hopelessly confused and live in darkness. And what he does in chapter 4 is he begins the list A list of things to avoid, sin and all kinds of attitudes. And then he turns them towards godly behavior. This is chapter four. But in chapter five, I think some of the most misunderstood verses, Paul continues to redefine relationships in Christ. And he addresses family and employer employee relationships. The key word in this section the key words are love and submission. It would not have been out of the ordinary at all to discuss the submissive role of the wife, the child, the employee, or the slave. You see, these were the weaker partners who were made weak by cultural norms. What is revolutionary in this document to the church is Paul is teaching and instructing the stronger partners, the husband, the parent, and the employer to show love and submission to the weaker partner. Yes, the wife defers and respects her husband, but the husband is to love his wife like the church. How did the church even become in the being? Christ gave his life. So perhaps this was revolutionary to the Roman Empire, but not in our one redemptive story. You see, submission and love and love and submission is modeled by the Trinity throughout our story. That's how they operate among themselves. This week we read an example of this in Philippians 2. Think about it. Jesus and the Father are co-eternal. They are co-equal and they are co-substantial. And co-substantial means of the same essence. It's saying they are both God. So the father does not order Jesus to go to the cross. No, Jesus submitted to his father in love. Paul is instructing the church to model the love relationship of the Trinity and their relationships. You see, chapter 5 of, of Ephesians is all about elevating human relationships. It's not about abuse or power. Finally, in chapter 6, we see one more relationship that the church has to deal with, and that's with the devil himself. And what are we to do? Put on this wonderful armor that Paul lists for us, and we're to fight. So before I move on, I want to review this story of the church, of this particular church, and ask you if this story sounds familiar, that you may have heard it perhaps in another part of the redemptive story. See, we find a people who are enslaved to sin and they're in need of redemption. Enslaved need to be redeemed. It's God who redeems them. They're now citizens in a new kingdom. God, through his Holy Spirit, instructs them on how to live in this new freedom. Obedience to God will help the church to grow. Have you seen people in the scripture before that were enslaved and oppressed and needed redemption and went to a new land for the first time in freedom so God gave them a law and if they lived up to that law they would have drawn others to him? Do you see how the story repeats itself? Sometimes it shouts, sometimes it whispers. Yes. Excellent. So we're in teaching and we're looking at Sinai at the same time. So you have been wonderfully patient and gracious, so it's time for you to, dis- to discuss and take some time. On page 238 of our study guide, which is our bigger book, Paul prays for the Ephesians to experience God's great power in their life together as a church. So our question, since I have the privilege of standing before the church and my local church community, have you experienced God's great power in your life with others at New City Church? And would you share your story? And I'll Let's take 10 minutes to do that. Thank you. I hope you all had a chance to share some rich stories with each other. So let's move on to Colossians. There's a lot of similarities between the books of Colossians and Ephesians. Same structure. The first half of Colossians chapters 1 and 2 are doctrinal. And the second, chapters 3 and 4, contain practical application. Paul encourages believers by being thankful for them and praying for them. And we heard that in Ephesians. Now this week, you got to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which contain a majestic picture of the exalted Christ. Who he is and what he has accomplished. And Paul grounds their new humanity in their relationship in Christ, Tracking the same with Ephesians. As we move into the practical section, Paul defines and encourages Christian behavior. Again, we see a list of things not to do, similar to Ephesians. He will go as far as calling greed idolatry. He then switches and he shows them how to live holy, in home, in service, in all walks of life, similar to Ephesians. Now he ends the letter with a listing of fellow Christian workers. And we see here, ministry is really not meant to be done alone. And we also see here that even though these fellow workers are united in Christ, you'll see by the list, they certainly do not have uniform personalities. There's a great example of it. So if we have this much similarity, why not just pass the other letter around? Well, we find out why he wrote this letter in chapter two. He tells us, false teaching had crept into the church. Now, in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, here's what we see. And now, just as you... First, what we have is the encouragement. Just as you've accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to Him. Let your roots grow down into Him and draw draw up nourishment from Him so that you will grow in faith, strong and vigorous, In the truth you were taught, let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. But verse 8, we see the shift. Would somebody please read that for us? Don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from from human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. Thank you. Epaphras was a citizen of Colossa. He became a Christian under Paul's preaching, and it is believed that he brought the gospel to his hometown. So he had a stake in this. He was visiting Paul while he was in prison in Rome, and he told Paul what was going on in the church. So Paul, with Timothy, wrote the letter in response to this report. The false teaching appears to be what is known as syncretism. So what is syncretism? Syncretism is an attempt to combine teachings and doctrines from different and apparently divergent traditions. I know that's a mouthful, but basically when you live in a culture that's diverse, got to watch out for syncretism, okay? So it's not unusual For this population, this was a city that was considered cosmopolitan, it was on the coast, people come in different communities, and so things were beginning to creep in. Syncretism is not unique to the Church of Colossa or the early church, it still exists, it still exists. In Colossa, in particular, it would be a mixing of Jewish tradition, Eastern mysticism, and Greek philosophies, with the gospel, because that's who was living there. So it looks something like this, and he's warning them against, watch out for enticing words. Vain philosophy, empty philosophy, ritualism. Who do you think that was coming from? What group of people? Angel worship, and look at this, empty and vain self-humbling and denials. That's about a rigorous form of self-denial for no reason. The danger is clear, he's saying. These teachings disrupt the unity now between church and Christ, its head. Christ is the true source of spiritual life and gives us access to God. So we find here what I think is a remarkable paradox. Adding anything to the gospel only diminishes it. And in the Old Testament, if you remember, If you want to get a prophet riled up, talk about idolatry. In the New Testament, watch these epistle writers. Once you start talking about false teaching, they're angry. Even beloved John will say in one of his letters, don't let anybody in that church house banish them if they're going to do anything to the gospel. So you're going to see in almost every New Testament epistle writer, somewhere along the line, they talk about false teaching. Anything, anything added to the gospel only diminishes it. They're going to keep it pure. The epistle to the Colossians is actually more indicative of the type of epistle Paul wrote over Ephesians. Ephesians is a wonderful, glorious, general letter to the church. Typically, Paul has, he's writing to the new churches, right? And they're coming in from different cultures. So typically, he's writing to correct issues that arise in a church. And why is that? because churches contain people. <laughs> so in the letter to the Colossians he's writing against heresy. But think about this, right? As you're reading other epistles, start watching what Paul's talking about. Different kinds of lifestyles coming into the church, false teaching coming into the church. All this is going on. That's why he's writing. So now we're going to move on to Philemon. This is considered Paul's most personal letter and it's the shortest. Philemon was a believer. Most probably, he became a believer under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul was there for about three years. He was a wealthy citizen. He lived in Colossa, and it is believed that part of a church met in his home because in this city, there were no churches. People met in people's homes. So he would be considered a church leader in the city. In that same household, he had slaves. One of his slaves, Onesimus, runs away. And the source of the conflict isn't known, but perhaps he stole something and he ran away. Now, somehow, Onesimus meets Paul. Hmm. And guess what happens? Paul converts him and he becomes a believer. You see, I think it's one thing we've been talking tonight about the church and nations and they're coming together and it's grand and it's big. This whole story and this whole concept is now becoming really personal because it's between a man two men who have always known each other as master and slave. And guess what? Now they're brothers in Christ. You see, the new humanity created in Christ is also united in Christ. So I think this letter really brings a lot of drama to the situation of the new people in Christ. The meat of the letter is this. Paul will use great wisdom and tact as he appeals to Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. I would recommend, if you might be having an issue with someone, read this letter. <laughs> Paul is restrained, and he uses tact and wisdom. It's excellent. It's, it's excellent. So we're gonna talk about it because it's, wor- it's worth looking at. Under Roman law, Onesimus was subject to harsh punishment, even execution for running away. But you know what, so was Paul. Paul ha- would, be, would, would have been seen as guilty because he was harboring a runaway slave. So what he does is he sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter written in his own hand. Not all Paul's letters were written directly in by Paul's hands. He uses ticket kiss in some of them. And he'll tell you other people are writing the letters, but this is in his hand because this is personal. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to talk about the big out there people. But it's happening right here, okay? So he will say, he starts, this is Philemon 1.7. Would somebody please read this? Listen to how Paul is pleading for Onesimus. I myself have gained much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because your kindness has so often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer just to ask you, my plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. Thank you. And he continues. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. Perhaps you can think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while so you can have him back forever. He's no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul. So if you consider me your partner, brilliant. If you consider me your partner, Give him the same welcome you would give me if I were coming. If he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge me for it. I will repay it. Who does that sound like? Yes. And here's the thing he says, I won't mention to you that you owe me your very soul because, right, but it's in there, it's in the letter. Okay. So yes, dear brother Philemon, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. The new humanity created in Christ is also united in Christ. Okay, now I have to tell you, we don't know the outcome. (laughs) Now, speculation here would be wasted because it's not in scripture. But here's the thing, one day we're all gonna know. (laughs) So one last discussion question, it's personal again. Because we're in a personal part of the scripture. Could you share a time when you resolved a conflict with another believer or reconciled with another believer? And the whole motivation that you even did this was because you were dealing with another believer. Would you be kind enough to share at your table? Thank you. Well, thank you. And if you're in the process of considering maybe approaching someone for reconciliation or you know, even resolve a conflict, you might want to read the letter to Philemon. It's a great role model of tact and wisdom. Yes. Okay. Okay. And my assumption is that I don't think men do this very well. Uh, and I'd like to know if that was true for basically the rest of you all. Great, great question. Hey guys, um, what do you think? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a great... Thank you for pointing that out. Thank you. Great, great observation. So, men, you now have a marvelous role model inspired by God in the book of Philemon. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on to Philippians. There there is so much we can say about this letter and this church, but tonight I want to concentrate on Paul as a model for us. There's two main ideas I want to share about Paul. First, the summary statement for Philippians, if you recall, on our timeline is... Joy in Christ. A couple years ago, I read the letter to Philippians as if Paul had sent it to me personally. So, didn't worry about chapters or anything like that. I just grabbed it, the, the, the text of it, had a pen in hand, and just ran through it and circled anything that jumped out at me. Didn't analyze it. I was really surprised at the pattern that emerged. It was the source of joy's Paul that surprised me. It would not have been on my top 10 reasons to be joyful. Paul was joyful because the gospel was spreading. Look at the phrases I circled. Partnership in the gospel. Defending and confirming the gospel. Serve to advance the gospel. Encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Defense of the gospel. Preach Christ. Christ is preached. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's chapter one. It turned out to be revelatory for me because I really had to be honest with myself. I never thought about that as being a basis for joy. Second point about Paul is his faithfulness and his passion for Christ and his mission. And I'll let Paul share that with you through Philippians. Would somebody please read Philippians 1.17-18. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me but whether or not their motives are pure, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached, so I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. Thank you. He is in prison. Those that are insincere are doing things to make his life more difficult. Not one complaint. I rejoice because in spite of all that, they're preaching the gospel. What else did you tell us in Philippians? What do we see in 121 and 22? For to me, living is for Christ, and dying is even better. Yet, if I live, that means fruitful service for Christ. I really don't know which is better. Thank you. So... Remember, Paul met Christ on his way to Damascus. So he's even saying being in, in his uh, glory with him or staying here on earth to serve him. I can't, I can't decide which is better. One more, Philippians 2.17. Would somebody please read that? my life is to be poured out like a drink offering to complete the sacrifice of your faithful service, that is, if I am to die for you, I will rejoice, and I want to share my joy with all of you. Thank you. Wine signified life. Paul is pouring out his life in service to God. Clearly, we see Paul. We see in him the outworking of the new humanity. And it's not natural. This is not natural. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit and a compliant heart on our part for this to happen. If Paul challenges you as he does me, I'd like to make a suggestion. I'm asking that you pray to our Lord to give you the heart of Paul. His heart for Christ and his heart for his mission. I started praying this prayer about three years ago inspired by what I read in Philippians. I want to know what it's like to live in the freedom of the new humanity. I think Paul's showing us. And this very letter offers us hope in our pursuit of this. Because Paul states this in Philippians. Would you like to read that for us right here, this young man? Yes. It's in Philippians two thirteen. Look at this encouragement. I'm a, I'm a Okay. Well, you got a great verse to read, so it's wonderful. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. Even in service to him, look at how he's working to transform us. Okay, put in your suit belts. We have to get through the pastoral epistles in just a few minutes. So let's talk about them. At the end of Acts, which is Acts 28, remember Paul is still under house arrest. It is believed that Paul was released from this imprisonment and made it to Spain. Now, most of the support for this theory or this thinking comes from sources outside the Bible because in Acts, Paul is still in prison uh, at at the end of that book. He's waiting for the officials to come, and the belief is they never did. So they lost interest, and Paul was released. Well, why Spain? Well, Paul intended to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, And at that time, Spain would have been considered the end of the earth. Also, in Romans 15, verses 24 and 28, Paul reveals his intention that he wanted to go to Spain. Well, basically, the scholars think he made it. But he's arrested again, and he's sent back to Rome. During this time, he writes the pastoral epistles, three letters to the next generation of church leaders. I wonder how many people here tonight on this campus are part of the next generation of church leaders. It's pretty exciting. Clearly he was inspired because in this imprisonment, it's not going to end well. He'll be executed under Nero. And think about it. If you look at 2 Timothy and you read that book, this is why we think this letter is his last letter because he sounds like someone who's coming to terms what's gonna happen. And what's he thinking about the next generation of church leaders? The letters are to first and second Tim- Timothy and Titus. The letters emphasize the necessity of Christian character and lifestyle for these future leaders. This week, we were asked to read a message from 2 Timothy, which is the teaching on Scripture and the authority it holds on the church. 2,000 years later, it holds the same authority. Although our personal and our subjective experiences with God, they're important, there's also an objective piece. Scripture is that objective piece. It's not influenced by our personal feelings or opinions. We don't control the narrative of this story, nor should we limit it to our own experience. And we hope that this is one of the benefits of studying the One Repentive story. See, we seek what the story is revealing to us, what God wants us to know about him as he intended, how he wants to be known, and then we understand our place in the story. And tonight we learned the new humanity created in Christ is also united in Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your inspired word that allows us to know you more intimately and reveals the implication of our faith in your son. Thank you for the many benefits and privileges we now have and for teaching us how to live as new members of this new humanity. Thank you that you continue to work in us to accomplish your perfect will for us. And Father, I ask that you would protect these people as they drive home tonight. May they be safe. And I ask that everyone here has a good night of rest. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention and for reading the scripture very much. Thank you.